Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that uh, you make no mistakes, uh, but that you um, accomplish what you seek to do always. Uh, and you promise to build up your church. And we pray that you would do that work now. Accomplish that work by showing us your son, Jesus Christ, by filling our hearts with faith and love for him. And, and by giving me your words to, to, to speak, to, to represent Christ truly, to represent the grace that you can convey to us in Christ and give to us in Christ. We, uh, we pray that the meditations of, of my heart and, and the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. My sermon title this morning, which is typically obligatory, <laughs> poses the question that we are going to seek to answer in relation to the Lord's Supper, the sacramental meal that has been laid out on this table before you. And that question is, what does this mean? What's this mean? To understand what this meal means, we have to go back to another meal that God's people used to eat thousands of years ago and ask the same question of that meal first. What does that meal mean? And the meal I'm talking about here is the Passover meal. Our Old Testament passage in Exodus 13 describes the prescription of that meal as a perpetual celebration within Israel. By the time Jesus was walking the beaches of Galilee and the streets of Jerusalem, the content and structure of that meal had undergone a number of additions and rearrangements, but it was still faithfully observed every year. And it's actually this first meal, the, the Passover meal, that Jesus adapts and modifies in order to give us the Lord's Supper. That's why we must first understanding the, understand the meaning of the Passover meal if we hope to understand the meaning of this meal, the Lord's Supper. The, the Passover meal was, was an act of both remembrance and participation in the salvation of God when he delivered the Hebrews from their bitter and protracted slavery in Egypt. As Exodus 13 details, the Passover meal consisted originally of unleavened bread and lamb. And it was, uh, sorry, and it was anticipated, later prescribed, that the Hebrew children would watch their parents preparing this meal of unleavened bread and lamb and ask, what's this mean? the very question we are asking this morning. And the parents were to tell their children, in response to the question, the story of how God brought them out of slavery through a display of love and strength in the 10 plagues that he sent against Pharaoh and the Egyptians. They ate unleavened bread in the meal because the force with which the Egyptians expelled the Hebrew people was so great and their exit so rapid that they didn't have time for bread even to rise. By the time the 10th plague had hit Egypt, Pharaoh was so ready to be rid of this people and their God that they had to flee with unleavened bread, what we call matzah, right? And they ate lamb during this Passover meal because they were specifically remembering that 10th plague which finally broke Pharaoh's stubborn will, forcing him to let God's people go as Moses had demanded. 
That 10th plague, if you remember, was the death of all the firstborn, human and animal in Egypt. God was going to kill all the firstborn children and animals because he knew this would be the only way his people would be delivered from their bondage. It would take something this extreme to break the stubbornness of Pharaoh. But he made a promise to his people living in Egypt. They too would suffer the death of their firstborn children and animals unless, unless they took a year old lamb without blemish and killed it. One for each household. And the meat of this lamb they were to roast and eat. But the blood of that lamb they were to spread on the exterior doorposts of their house so that God would see it and he would spare the household from the death of this 10th plague. As one scholar explains, the blood on the doorposts was a sign of the covenant that those who were within had with God. It marked them as God's people and so they were spared. The the people of God ate that Passover meal of lamb and unleavened bread the night of the 10th plague, and they were to eat it every year after that in order to keep the memory of their redemption and covenant relationship with God fresh in their minds. The Passover meal was therefore an act of remembrance. It was a memorial meal. But it wasn't just a memorial meal, for it had significance far beyond mere memory. The Passover meal was also participatory in nature. It was personal. And although it happened in the past, it had a real effect upon the present. The story of the Exodus was retold, but the parent told this story in response to the child's question with thanksgiving. This was no cold historical retelling. It was filled with praise, which is significant. And one scholar explains why. He writes this about thanksgiving. By giving thanks for God's gifts, one appropriated them to one's own use. This is an old principle of biblical prayer. Giving thanks blesses or consecrates the gifts one has received so that one may use those gifts for one's own enjoyment and profit. In the Passover benedictions, the devout Jews gave thanks for the history of salvation and thereby made it the history of their salvation. By giving thanks for the release from bondage in Egypt, they claimed their own freedom. By giving thanks for the gift of the land, they made it their land. By giving thanks for the kingdom of David, they were assured of their place in it. The Passover meal, if you look at Exodus 13, was not just a single meal. It was a seven-day feast filled with thanksgiving and rejoicing because through their participation in this meal, they were entering into the story of God's redemption. The benefits and promises of God's salvific action in Egypt were being extended to them. As that same scholar says, by participating in the, new, in the meal, each new generation was added to that people who had been saved from the armies of Pharaoh and the slave masters of Egypt. That God was their God, and the salvation he accomplished was the same they could expect. And they were confident of this because they were eating the meal he had given them to communicate this very thing. 
And if you're feeling a bit skeptical, skeptical about all this participatory language, look at what parents generations removed from the Exodus are instructed to tell their children in verse eight when their children ask them what, do they, what does this mean. The parents are to tell their children it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. What the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. The parent who never spent a day in slavery in Egypt was to tell their child this because through this meal they were locating themselves in the story of God's redemption as heirs to his promises and the benefits conveyed to his people in the Exodus. That God is our God, the mother was to tell her son. That God is our God, the mother was to tell her son. And in eating this meal, we can be sure that he will deliver us from anything that enslaves or controls us as well. This meal was hugely important in the life of God's people. It helped to define their identity, their relationship to God, their relationship to the community of saints to which they belonged. It was central, it located them. It was hugely important, which is why Jesus catches our attention when he alters it, when he alters the Passover meal in order to create the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a variation of the Passover, and so it retains some of the meaning of the Passover. But Jesus infused that meaning with a new and greater significance when, as it is recorded in our New Testament passage for this morning, he tied the significance of the elements to himself. In Matthew 13, he takes the bread, right? He gives thanks for it. He breaks it and he gives it to his disciples and tells them that the bread of the Lord's Supper no longer corresponds with the unleavened bread that the Hebrews ate in the Exodus, but with his body, which like the bread will be broken. And then he then took the, the cup of wine. By the first century, there were four cups of wine that had been added to the ritual of this Passover meal. And Jesus picks up one of them, and again, he gives thanks. And he says that this wine is my blood. Drink it, all of you, he tells them. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for you uh, for the forgiveness of sins. And what's interesting is that None of the gospel writers mention a lamb, right? In Exodus 13, we saw that bread and lamb were the two essential elements of the Passover meal, but no mention is made of a lamb, and that is because Jesus is is the lamb who will be killed in our place and whose blood we will not spread on the doorposts of our houses as the sign of the covenant we have with God. No, we will drink the blood of Jesus Christ the lamb that was slain on our behalf in order to communicate the covenant relationship we have with him. You see, the Passover meal was a memorial and a redemption uh, and a participation in the salvation of God when he delivered the Hebrews from their bitter and protracted slavery in Egypt. And the Lord's Supper is a memorial and participation in the salvation of God when he delivered his children from our bitter and protracted slavery to sin. He delivered us from sin 
through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. His body was broken like the, like the bread and his blood spilt like the wine sloshing around in the cup. And we eat his body and drink his blood, not just to remember his death, but to participate in the salvation he purchased for us on the cross and in the empty tomb. He gives us this meal to assure us of our position and our salvation through him. If a child asks you what this meal means, then Exodus tells you what to say to that child. It is because of what the Lord did for me when I was delivered from sin on the cross. The New Testament tells us over and over again that sin produces death in us but that Jesus conquered death and the resurrection. And through his resurrection power, he delivers us from the influence of sin which entangles and enslaves us. All the benefits and promises of his death and resurrection are extended to us and come to us through this meal when it is eaten in faith. This meal is testifying to the fact that when he died, we died. And when he was raised, we too were raised to live a life free from the influence of sin for his own glory and not our own. As the Apostle Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is a covenant meal, testifying to our position in Christ. That's why it's not a meal to be eaten by non-Christians or by those who have not received the sign of the covenant, which is baptism. If you look back at the end of Exodus 12, the instructions for the Passover were that no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. Circumcision, like baptism, was the sign of the covenant. And Passover, like the Lord's Supper, is the meal that is eaten over and over again in order that we might locate ourselves, our identities, our relationship with God, our relationship to the community of saints as our brothers and sisters in the covenant, beloved by God. If you're struggling to understand yourself, right? If you're having trouble identifying where you belong or what is true of you in a world where there are far too many voices, then this meal is a gift for you if you will eat it in faith. In the eating, you will be assured that you belong to God. You're his child. You'll be assured of his deliverance of you from sin. You will be assured of the forgiveness that Jesus purchased for us in his own condemnation. You'll be assured that the spirit of the living God lives in you and will never leave you or forsake you. Charles Taylor, the Canadian philosopher, often talks about the insecurity and anxiety that afflicts us here in the West. And he attributes our great neediness to the fact that we've made the individual the determiner of of our own identity, right? We go inside ourselves and we come out with a declaration of who we are. Even to the point where we can declare that who we are doesn't match what you see. And I don't say that in judgment, but to say how exhausting this is, how unsustainable it is for you to define yourself. You can never waver. You can never doubt for a second. But the table's a remedy for that. For you do not have to define yourself. He tells you who you are. And you can be found in him. And in the story of his great redemption, 
for he tells you in this meal, you're mine. That's who you are. You're mine. The supper is a remedy. And it's no wonder that the early church celebrated this meal every time they were together. And the gift of this meal is why we should celebrate this meal as often as we can, never missing an opportunity to be assured of our position in Christ. In just a few moments, we're going to feast together on this spiritual meal and listen to what is said in our liturgy. For we're following the pattern of the Passover and the historical liturgy of the church from its inception all the way through the Reformation and into the present. We begin as though we are answering a child in our midst who has asked us the meaning of this meal. We begin by retelling the story of our salvation. But this is no cold historical retelling. It's filled with thanks. It's prefaced by the lifting up of our hearts and our acknowledgement that it's right and good to give God our thanks and praise. And by telling this story with our hearts lifted up and thanksgiving in our hearts, to quote the scholar from earlier, we are appropriating this story for our own use. We give thanks for the story of God's redemption and through Jesus Christ, and thereby we make it the story of our salvation. In this meal, the story is being expanded to include us. So when you eat, eat with joy, for you are being redeemed and led through this world by the strong and mighty hand of God until Christ returns and you are found in him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.